mechanical cooling has actually caused us to close up our buildings and what that's done is actually disengaged us from nature and the, the outdoors we no longer have patios to sit out on with your neighbor which is that human contact which is a big part of mental health there are dire warnings that new south wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began your show this july was the single hottest month in recorded history australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record climate change is now affecting every country on every continent it's a great it's a great concern and what do you want that rate down to oh it's human activity we have everything we need some still doubt that we have the will to act but i say the will to act is itself a renewable resource hello and welcome to episode 21 of climactic the people's voice on climate change hello mark hello listeners yes the episode today started with phil wilkinson a long-time member of ERA, a non-profit advocate for the, and I'll just take a deep breath here, listeners, heating, ventilation, air conditioning and cooling and refrigeration industry in Australia. Well done, Rich, or from now on, for the sake of us, just HVAC and R. Now, that would be nice, Mark, yes. (laughs) Both that group and Phil especially are pushing the industry to tackle the big problems that have arisen because of the ubiquity of temperature control. It's everywhere, especially its massive impact on greenhouse gas emissions and potential for misuse in creating unsustainable buildings and our lifestyles. That's incredible. Now, you're probably listening to this show in a building or a car. Or you've eaten food today from your fridge or from a supermarket chiller. And there's an industry that makes that all possible. It's huge and complex and incredibly invisible, although we all benefit from it every day. So what is this hidden industry, Mark, and why does that sound so, to be honest, menacing? It's called HVAC&R, and it's the glue that holds our built world together. And if you want to point out some of the downsides of the way we've built homes, cities, our transport, and even international trade in its entirety, it's a pretty big cause of all that. So I suppose it's hiding on purpose? It's not, actually, not at all. In fact, there are some in the industry eager to now burst out of the plant room and start telling their stories. And how, in a real surprise to me, they've got the opportunity today to stop and start to reverse some of the most severe damage to our climate and atmosphere. That's incredible. Okay, Mark, don't bury the lead. What is it? I'm not telling. (laughs) But luckily, Phil is. All right, so I'm at the library at the Doc Studios with Phil Wilkinson. Now, Phil uh, is a guy I just met last week. I've had the the pleasure of of many hours of talking to him already, though. As you'll see from this interview, just like me, Phil's Phil's a very good talker. It's a very good (laughs) skill to have, Phil. A listener of the show, Lee Baker, introduced us because we were doing some parallel things. Thanks thanks for having us along to the the wooden box down in Docklands that I've never been to, the library. I've heard a lot about it, so it's uh, it's nice to be down here. And what an amazing studio they've got. Yeah, it's a pretty nice box. I mean, it's we're not in summer yet, so it's not a hot box yet, but it feels like spring outside, so that'll be right around the corner. Yeah, but it's air-conditioned, though, so hopefully... I was going to uh, say, well, luckily will we'll right. be staying nice and cool <laughs> thanks to the marvels of HVAC and, <laughs> and refrigeration. So, Phil, you you work at ERA now, and you, and you have for quite a while. Can you tell us about what ERA is and what you do there? Yeah, so ERA's a we're a not-for-profit organisation and it's very much moving towards being an environmental organisation where we our membership is from all over the country and work all through the uh, the value chain that keeps food fresh, keeps bloods getting to hospitals and also keeps us comfortable in buildings. And uh, it's the, the, the hidden industry and that's the air conditioning refrigeration industry. So people never think about it except when it's not working. So one of my passions is how do we make that visible? How do we tell that story and humanise it so we can start to realise some of the impact that we can have on juicing and reversing climate change? We do a number of things for our members, uh, magazines, conferences. So we take all the smart stuff that they do, repackage it and put it out so uh, other people can get smart. So it's brilliant to be on the show, trialling another way of getting out to, to people to help them understand. That's fantastic. Phil, I like it right before he even said like what the name of the group was or anything or the industry really you gave some of the effects of the industry keeping blood cool getting fresh food to us keeping us comfortable in our houses on this very arid continent I don't think a lot of other people in an industry would kind of lead with the the effects of the industry because 
it's probably more well understood. There is this kind of complex within the, the HVAC and refrigeration industry that you guys are the, the invisible industry. So you have to say, for hey, just straight up front, here's what we do for you guys, because you, the layperson, don't really understand this industry. And that's fascinating. So AERA is the Australian Institute of Refrigeration, Air Conditioning, and heat. Heating. I understand there's a bit of a divide between air conditioning and ventilation and heating on one side and then refrigeration on the other. So I think people who work in refrigeration must really enjoy that in ERA, at least, refrigeration comes first in the acronym. Yeah, look, refrigeration was where it all started. So back probably over 100 years ago now, uh, refrigeration was invented in Geelong by an entrepreneurial Scottish guy called James Harrison. He was working on his print press, so he was uh, an editor down at the Geelong Advertiser and noticed that the ether evaporating off the print plates when he was cleaning them was actually causing them to cool down. So he's a smart fella. He's put some dots together, created an ice-making machine. So the refrigeration aspect came first. Australia was looking for ways we could export sheep back to around the world. So we got great farming land, but we're a long way from markets. So that was really where it all kicked off. Air conditioning has a really interesting background as well. And again, it was not. It was tied in with the printing industry as well. Uh, Willis Carrier over in the US was looking at uh, a way of reducing the humidity impact on printing presses on printing paper because the the inks weren't sticking. So he came up with the first air conditioning system. And what we've seen probably over the last 40, 50 years is a real air conditioning become the the bigger known side of the industry. But at the heart of every air conditioner is a a refrigeration system. And now we see that the refrigeration is, is very hidden and serving lots of different value chains. But air conditioning is something we all enjoy, but we don't always think about the impact from the emissions. Mm. Uh, we just know that when it doesn't work, it gets hot. That's right. And yeah, we, we don't think about it very much. And it's really good. You gave kind of due credit to refrigeration for what it's meant in, in spawning all these other things afterwards. What do you think Australia would look like if we'd never come up with these amazing technologies? So I mean, there's, there's so many good things industry's done for us. And, and it's probably hard to imagine what life would be like in especially cities without it. But there's the dark side, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. Look, I think to your first question, what would Australia be like? I think Tasmania would be very crowded, probably switch the lights off on the mainland. There's a lot of places you wouldn't be able to inhabit. But yeah, the dark side. So we've been doing all these great things as engineers, but when we actually look at emissions impact, it's it's massive. So in Australia alone, we, we use about a quarter of all the generated electricity through refrigeration and air conditioning systems. That is um, staggering. It's massive, yeah. A quarter All of it's already gone to refrigeration and, and HVAC. Absolutely. And wow. no one thinks about it. So I get to I get paid to think about it. So I've been thinking about it for about 15 years. And you start to look at what refrigeration enables. And it actually, it's everywhere. You, I think someone mentioned the figure of when milk comes to the table, it's already gone through 12 steps of being cooled, processed through into your fridge, into the supermarket, in your air-conditioned car to get home. And when you start thinking about it like that, you go, wow, that is a big impact. And that's just that's just milk alone. And the farmer's vat to the... Right from the cow. Milk trucks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, again, in hot parts of Australia, you have some coolers running for the cows. <laughs> yeah. Uh, some milking stress going on. You don't want that. As a layperson, I can understand that the amount of power being consumed by the industry is huge, you know, collectively. But rather than saying it's the industry consuming almost a quarter of the power in, in Australia, it's, it's a lot of us individuals as well with our own personal home heating and cooling that collectively in aggregate make up this, this huge number. But other than the power use that we're doing, that's bad in Australia right now, particularly because of our power generation mixture. We've got a lot of coal plants still in our grid. But if that was all renewables and we're just consuming this power to heat and cool our homes, is there any detriment there or is there something I'm missing? Where we come, where I certainly come from, where our organization comes from, you have to look at the uh, what you're using it for in the first place. So from a building's point of view, get the building built properly. So it's built for environment. You keep the heat out in the first place. You have it oriented properly. So talk about passive solar design. So absolutely minimize the amount of heat that coming into a space then choose a system that is properly sized is very efficient for when you need it most get it installed by someone capable and competent big bit we don't do here is we don't commission plant properly to make sure it's running as it's meant to and then the other really hidden bit is the maintenance side so people set these things forget them i've been thinking about these things and looking at them for a long time 
and you start to pull some of the vents back and have a look in the fans there's a lot of stuff growing uh, on coils which are very moist and damp mold dirt on fans and when you start thinking back to where that comes from it's the dirt and the skin that's in the room that gets drawn into those things so it's being recirculated into the air we're all breathing in the office building for example that's it, yeah. Wow, so that's some gnarly stuff. One of the tricks for us is how do we make that humanise so that, or make it so that the layperson can understand it. So they start to go, oh, I wonder if that's been cleaned. So it's not just the health impact, it's also the environmental and the energy impact as well. With my exposure to China, this advent of home air quality sensors and air purifiers that'll actually let you know, hey, there's a lot of stuff I'm filtering out of the air right now. I'm your little humble air purifier trying to keep your kid from getting asthma, danger, danger. As that kind of technology becomes more and more prevalent and gets out into office buildings, is that is that something that you're excited about for the industry as, as letting lay people know that, hey, that there is elements to your air that shouldn't be here, that is a, a byproduct of you not taking care of your HVAC system? Because this, this isn't running as designed. It's interesting. It reminds me of a story of a time when I used to, when I was in London, and I looked at buildings and there was air conditioning there. And I'm like, why on earth would you air condition a building in London? Surely the climate is okay to have the windows open. But then you start thinking about the pollution in the air and you've got the, the fine particles that are in the air. And as I've come to learn about the industry, which I'd never ever seen or thought of before, you go, oh, that's why they're air conditioned. So that a conditioning part of the air is actually removing the dirt, which is the ventilation part. Cooling is another part of air conditioning. I think with your question on sensors, that's anything you can you can measure, then you can start asking questions. Carbon dioxide is a good one. Often you hear about schools that have got their classrooms closed up, gets to afternoon, the carbon dioxide levels can start to get quite high with the kids in there. Schools tend not to open the windows for some reason. And the first indicator of that is the noise levels going up. So we've, we've read some research in Germany where they go, okay, we'll let the kids out, flush the room out with fresh air. And then they come back in and that concentration comes back. With the CO2 levels in school classrooms, I was just thinking while you were describing that, oh, that's that's the afternoon doze period. Yep. That's why all the students are getting quiet and dozy because the CO2 levels are going up. And then you said, oh, the, the noise levels are increasing. I realized, oh, that's the teacher yelling to get the students <laughs> to wake up from the afternoon doze. That makes complete sense. Yeah, actually. yeah. Can you help me understand beyond just the power consumption of the industry, what are the direct emissions things we should be worried about and what are you guys trying to tackle as an industry? So, so there's two two aspects to the emissions, Mark. Um, one is the energy that we use. So um, that's the indirect emissions. The direct emissions that you alluded to are the when refrigerant itself is released into the atmosphere. So as an industry, we've we came up with the CFCs, which are chlorofluorocarbons which were damaging to I won't the ask you to say that 10 times fast <laughs> although if um, anybody could it would be you but yeah. um, chloro? chloro chlorofluorocarbons very good chlorofluorocarbons chlorofluorocarbons <laughs> there you go twice so they were to replace really dangerous chemicals methyl bromides and, and quite nasty toxic substances then we found out after 30 years there was a problem with the ozone layer so we went okay let's get rid of them so these these are the synthetic refrigerants then we went to what we call hcfc's hydrofluorocarbons hydrochlorofluorocarbons i thought the first one was tough <laughs> um so what we did with those was re- really reduce the the ozone depleting potential of those the current generation of refrigerants we went to is called the hfc's or hydrofluorocarbons and globally, we're just seeing a phase down of those starting. So we replaced the ozone depleting gases with really, really high global warming potential gases. So a typical gas now might be 2,000 to 4,000 times more potent in the atmosphere than carbon dioxide. Jeez. Two so, to 4,000. And it's hard. Sometimes it's hard for us as engineers to to make that understandable to people that are listening to your show. It's easy for an engineer that's rational and saying, oh, you, you should make sure your system doesn't leak and make sure you've got a proper refrigeration mechanic doing it. We haven't been able to tell that story particularly well about what that means to the, the environment and that an individual can make an impact by doing it properly. So is that one of the, the major things we're looking out for is leaks in existing systems? Leaks is critical that we, we make sure they don't happen. Um, it's illegal to knowingly let refrigerant leak. The other thing is if they do leak, the actual system becomes more inefficient, which means we don't get the, the cooling it's meant to. It runs less efficiently. So it's got like a double double banger. Yikes. And, and then, so we've got leaks, which, which I can imagine is a huge thing because 
I've worked in many an office where, unfortunately, the reception person just becomes a catch-all for all maintenance issues as well. And if you're finding, ah, oh, the AC is taking a little bit longer to heat up in the morning, or, or the cooling's not as effective as it was a few months ago, it gets sort of told to the receptionist once, twice, three times, and eventually somebody gets called, and eventually there's a call out, and if they get told, oh, this is going to be a big bill, oh, oh, well, let's not do anything about it now, let's wait in a couple months until the new budget rolls over, and it's just a complete lack of priority and urgency around these things, I guess, stemming from lack of communication. So yeah, well, there's someone like me agitating in the office, like, this is illegal. <laughs> well, that's, that's if it leaks. That's if it leaks out of the actual plant room. Typically, in the office yourself, you, it might not be cooling as it's supposed to. What we see a lot of in typical complaints is things get just temporarily fixed. It's critical to get someone to come in and find what the root cause is of, of those issues. So a good company will come in and ask all the different people about the different aspects. So it might be you in the where you are, someone that looks after, say, a janitor, and the different people that use the space, and through that, go and find the root cause. Now, that may be a leak in the refrigerant system, or it may be that the programming's wrong in the, the building management system. So it's really critical, because they're complex systems, it's critical to understand that they deliver service for people, so understand all the different aspects to get to that root cause. So a technician working in the space is a little bit like Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, you could say that. Yeah, he's uh, he's taught to diagnose, problem solve, and that's one of the great things about the trade, the technician side of the industry. It's it's not just turn up, put some wires together for say an electrician. There's all these different aspects. There's a bit of electrical, bit of plumbing, bit of controls. So it's yeah, fascinating sector. That that's a fantastic kind of overview of the industry, Phil, and the sort of the people that work in it. So I'm kind of curious, what inspired you to be one of those people? So like you've got you know all these facets to it you have to be really technically minded and then and then good with people a bit to diagnose a problem but you're you're definitely one of the the people people what made you get interested in doing this kind of work that's a really good question so i from yorkshire in the north of england where to be quite honest i never actually heard the term air conditioning or refrigeration i'm sure it was around me keeping beer actually we drink warm beer so maybe not maybe that's not a good example that's I'm actually sure. a terrible example it should never <laughs> exist so it, well, I'm sure it would have been used, but I'd never, it's not something I ever thought of as an occupation. I went off to university. I was good at maths and physics. So I went to do engineering, mechanical engineering, which is what my mates were doing. At the time, the trade barriers were coming down in Europe and there was an opportunity to do my degree with French. So off I go to France to study mechanical engineering in French, which opened my eyes up to traveling, met all these international students. Didn't really know what I wanted to do when I finished my degree. So I thought, well, I'll go to Australia. Some of my friends have been there. And I wanted to get some work experience. I didn't just want to go to Sydney and work in a bar. I could have done that in London. So I got out, pounded the pavements of the Gold Coast where I was staying with some relatives. And a guy from Leeds in Yorkshire actually hired me doing CAD drafting, so computer-aided drafting. And it happened to be in a building services firm. So... I was always a bit of a nosy bugger and always asking what I was drawing, what the, what the red lines were on the page. The electrical drawings were all pretty straightforward, sing, single line drawings, but the mechanical drawings were quite complex. So the, the mechanical engineers would show me the catalogues. Then they started to take me out on site, taking me to meetings. And it was an area that really fascinated me because it was complex and it interactions and it was about people. Just to clarify if I can there, Phil. So the mechanical side of the, the drawings you're looking at, was there any elements to it beyond HVAC and refrigeration, or is it mainly mechanical relates to the... So we talk about mechanical services in a building as as the aircon and uh, the ventilation, so car park exhaust systems, kitchen exhaust systems. Uh, we were doing a lot of hotel and apartment work. Because the, the only other thing I could think of being vaguely mechanical, and you're going to laugh at me for this, is like, what's something else mechanical in a building? And I was like, a garage door opener. Yep. Like would that classify? Or so that's that's miscellaneous. It would be it wouldn't come under our space. So mechanical building services, I guess, is the prop the full term. Yep, which is which for these purposes and, and in the industry is synonymous with heating and ventilation and cooling. Yep. Ducts and pipes. Yeah, thank you very much for the clarification there. And now I learned something. <laughs> that's good. Beyond learning about HVAC and R, now I know that means that's, mechanical services yep, and buildings. That's it. So I kind of fell into the industry and that's the thing I found in the industry, people, it's it's too much of a coincidence. 
Um, a lot of people fall into this industry and we tend to be quite introverted, deep thinkers. And I actually think it's uh, it's an industry that attracts people that maybe gravitate towards that. People get quite comfortable working in this hidden industry. The next generation of people coming through are a lot more collaborative and a lot more communicative and can explain things. Certainly that, that was the thing I noticed. But you're not that way. Yes, my uh, after about seven years, so I was sponsored by the organisation I worked for up on the Gold Coast to become a graduate engineer. After about five or six years of wrestling with architects about where I was going to squeeze a, an air conditioner on the balcony, my life force was ebbing away a bit. One of those crises points in your life where you go, what What am I doing? I looked around and I didn't real, really feel very inspired by the, the people that were around me. So an opportunity came up with the, the Institute era to work on the industry. So I've now, I've, I've been working in that role 15 years and really I get to work with the best in the industry a really top of the game in their fields and I get to help translate that or collaborate with them to to work with the other team members or create guidelines or work on Australian standards or the building code so it's really quite a privileged position so I get to I get a very broad umbrella overview of the industry its issues its challenges but also the the impact we can do have so talking about the impacts of the industry at what point did you kind of start to relate what was going on in the industry to an awareness about the fact that there is this thing out there called human driven climate change and that there was a link between what we're doing to the planet and the fact the industry is is involved in that. As soon as I started working at ERA, we were doing work with the Commonwealth Australian Greenhouse Office on training for energy efficiency. So the organisation had been really progressive in its thinking, recognising we were a real a real energy hog and it's to me it's just uh, it's quite strange that people talk about sustainability not strange but people talk about sustainability for me it's just it's dumb if we waste things so being being from yorkshire which is uh, north of england I'm, I'm quite frugal so i don't like to use more than i than i meant to and when people say oh you're, you're this sustainability guy i'm like i don't hug trees or anything i just don't like wasting things so mm. That's more where where I come from. It's just it's just dumb to to waste what you don't need to waste. I'm really struck by the fact that Era hasn't put like short termism right at the front of its interests. It's not saying, "Hey, industry, if you can sell more units into a building, if this building can have more AC, more heating needs, but more ductwork in, yeah, you know, that's the best thing for us. If we can just get the the highest contracts and the most work we can available." But instead, ERA hasn't taken that tact. It's been talking about emissions and about sustainability for quite a while. What is it about this group that represents an industry that's able to have that perspective instead of the let's just sell more quicker and make more money right now? As you say, it's a long, very much a long-term view. If we look at what the impact of climate change is going to be, we're going to have hotter days, we're going to have bigger hailstorms, we're going to have floods, we're going to have more humidity in some spaces. If we keep on down the track, we're going by putting more emissions into the air by more kit. That's just going to create a cycle effect of making it worse. So what we need to do is create buildings now and in the refrigeration sector that do a lot of the work themselves to keep the heat out of the buildings so that they don't rely as heavily on a mechanical services system so that if for some reason the the power goes out or one of these other impacts happens, then there's there's more hope of getting them back up and get them working. As an engineer in the industry, you're actually providing a service. Engineers are all about people, but we forget that sometimes. People don't buy ductwork and they don't buy chillers. They buy comfort and they don't think about that, but they that's the service that our industry provides. And as engineers, we look at a building as a system. So how do we provide that comfort for the occupants and um, people in the building in the most effective and efficient way. So we we need to start working a lot better with builders and with architects. Architects have kind of become a bit disempowered because of air conditioning. We've been able to throw glass boxes up. You look at all the skylines of the major cities in Australia and it blows me away. They all look the same. Glass buildings. Because you can put air conditioning in, throw a lot of energy at it and you get a comfortable, comfortable outcome. What we need to see is, um, and what we hopefully will see through the building codes, is step change, real transformation. And we're, we're hopeful that is is going to be on the cards so that you can no longer build buildings like they look today. So they're going to re-empower the architects uh, and start to get some of that vernacular design back into the Australian context, which I, I think is really exciting. 
Fantastic. Like from the outside, I would not think there was this much a thinking going on about it and then so much action. You know, you're involved with an industry group, but you're also actively reimagining the industry. You don't just want to keep writing the same industry as long as you can. You're evolving while you have the the choice to. And which is great. Um yeah. and you've you personally have been really active in this as well with trying to collaborate across not only other industries here in Australia, but but connecting that HVAC and refrigeration industry globally as well to sort of communicate what some places are doing well versus what some places maybe aren't doing so well and actually letting them know they can they can be doing a lot better rapidly. So can you tell us a little bit about the the initiatives you're sort of putting in place to create this not fraternity, but this this collection, this eco, we call it an ecosystem. So this, it's going yeah. to be it's going to be organic. So this comes from, I guess, um, my love of causing a bit of mischief, uh, having a bit of fun. My, I have, I talk about superpowers. So my superpower is I love to connect people. I love listening to people's stories, and I love connecting them with other people that I think they can do awesome things with. So I'm all about introducing people together that are more awesome than me so that I can learn from them having a conversation. And this is a concept I've, I've come to realise over the years. Been very inspired through the work that Paul Hawking has done on, on Project Drawdown. He came over here to Australia and talked about the Drawdown project and that they found that refrigerant management was the number one action to reverse climate change. It made me laugh because his presentation has got all this beautiful imagery of families in Peru that have now got solar panels on their roofs so that the smoke from fires isn't poisoning their kids and other things about windmills and cows eating kelp on the beach and then he sort of cuts to refrigerant management and said how disappointed he was because it just wasn't sexy so i'm sitting burn so i'm sitting in the audience going i know that i'm owning it because that's been my life for 15 years trying to come up with that narrative so that people go ah i get it so we've been talking to to Canberra, to our politicians for, say, 15 years about maintaining, commissioning. But they just keep changing. They just keep changing. Well, that's, so. that's the only line I'll drop in about the current day's events. Absolutely. And it's, we're living in extraordinary times. There's a lot of people with a lot of voices at Canberra. So the idea of this global ecosystem that you asked me about is that we can actually democratise around the globe to tackle what actually are global issues. So, you know, climate change is a big global issue. And in the words of, of Paul Hawking, it's about being fit and about being unreasonable you know we're the we're the people in this collective that want to make a change the other bit that i've realized though is that as engineers we we're really great at hanging out in plant rooms and talking tech and acronyms and we've got the number one opportunity to reverse climate change so i go okay so we've got this massive opportunity but we're massively complex and technical so my my thinking is that gives us the right to have as much fun as we can, work with storytellers and make our stories as human as possible. So the concept that we, we're starting with is going, okay, let's put the engineers with storytellers, but also pair them up with social scientists to actually understand the people and the context of every situation rather than just saying, use this standard because it is good and it will give you this outcome. So I've got a really, really strong belief that we've actually got to work across those disciplines with with experts like yourself that can tell the story. And my industry, let's just get on with it in the plant room, but let's let's do this co-working around the globe and as you say, it's, you know, let's surface some of these stories, these brilliant stories, so we can take some of the risk, the perceived risk out of the, the problems we've got out there, and let's learn from other people. Let's use those case studies, and let's be fearless together. Phil, we're about to go into an excerpted interview you did with Paul Hawk and yourself, you and Mark Vender from ERA, who's the editor of the great HVAC in our nation publication you guys put out as well. Do you have any sort of framing thoughts or anything before we go into the interview? It was a real privilege to have some time with Paul Hawking. I was vaguely aware of the the drawdown book in 2017 but i had my head down on other projects it kind of went over the top of my radar then someone tagged me in a, a linkedin conversation saying he was coming out this year and that air had been really proactive in refrigerant management and i was like that's a bit strange because the person that tagged me in i didn't i didn't even know her it was elaine stanley um so i did a bit of rummaging around and reread the the drawdown work and saw this refrigerant management as number one so as the number one action so i was like i've got to meet this guy so i put my feelers out to see where he was going to be uh, and i was lucky enough to sit in with two of his talks he's an amazing human being you'll hear it in his voice he's just very very soulful uh spiritual and you just want to listen to him and he's, he's a wonderful storyteller when he talked about the drawdown project and doing the math it made me 
it made me think about a project we'd done, which was it was I talk about it being accidental. We'd accidentally collected all of the solutions to reverse to reducing emissions in our industry, but we didn't do the math and we didn't tell the story. So I was like, ah, oh, this 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 was where the inspiration came from. So I said to Paul, um, I asked him a question. I said, oh, have you thought about a cross sectoral drawdown across the HVAC and R sector? And he just looked at me and said, why don't you do it? And I was like, oh. Yeah, why not? He already did have the work. Yeah. And the other bit, I saw him the second time, and I asked him the bit about behavior change. I said, have you thought about looking at the behavior change aspect, the social and psychological side? And again, he just said, why don't you do it? So both Mark, Mark Vendor and myself watched this and were really excited afterwards. Uh, and we got the opportunity to interview Paul after he'd just left Australia. So we thought well, it's going to be great to get his insights about what he took away from Australia, which was some really wonderful things. But also, again, just to see, to pitch this concept of cross-sectoral air-conditioned refrigeration drawdown. And, and he was still keen. So we're writing to the drawdown team to explain why we want to do it, but also the things that we need help from them. So the gauntlet has been thrown down by none other than Paul Hawken. As he says to Phil, if you want to see a change in our world or in your industry, in your locality, why not do it yourself? So Phil had the opportunity to get Paul on the phone and ask him some questions about his 19 days in Australia in early 2018 and how you'd go about starting a drawdown associated project in, say, the HVAC in our sector. Now that you're at the end of this tour of Australia, how have your presentations been received and, and what are some of the observations and stories that you'll take away from, from Australia? Um, my observation, which I shared this morning at Wild One, Sydney, was that Australia is a lot further ahead than it thinks it is <laughs> with respect to action on global warming and connection, activism, funding, targets. It's, it's a lot further ahead. It, I think it ha actually happens a lot in the Antipodes, you know, because you're kind of remote and, and, then, uh, and then you overachieve because <laughs> you, don't, you don't know what the limits are. <laughs> That's one of the things I noticed when I jumped on a plane to America, Paul, is you realise Australia's a long way from anywhere and it's not on the way to anywhere. So we get we live in this bubble as you sort of allude to. Okay. We we don't know what we can't do. And to your favour, and that's true about New Zealand as well. And uh, there's a kind of a gumption and indebtedness and uh, I don't know where to stop kind of quality, you know, I'm just gonna keep going. That I think is overlooked, you know, because you're comparing yourselves to yourselves in a sense, you know. And as an outsider, as somebody coming in here for being here 19 days, and, you know, I don't learn anything when my mouth is open, but you do <laughs> talk and you get questions and you get people give you the literature from their groups. I've heard from, you know, academics, from professors, from government people, from you know, the municipal level on up, and um, I'm really impressed. It, it doesn't mean you can slow down, shouldn't do that, but, but I mean, I'm very impressed with what's going on in Australia, and I know Australia has the same sort of just, well, actually it's not the same. It has a dysfunctional federal government, as do we. It's actually, compared to ours, yours seems very functional, actually, but, <laughs> but, but I mean, out of touch, you know, and in some ways, and and more in the throes of you know big corporates, and especially in the mining industry. So, uh, you know, I mean, that's something you have to deal with. Where we have the federal government again and again and again on our country, you know, a Congress, the Congress elected by the people, for the people, by the people, of the people, right? I mean, passing laws and signing regulations that most Americans actually disfavor, you know, are against. And I think there's some of that here too, you know. So that's a governing system that doesn't really work for the times we're in. And so just as here, but I think also in America, you see tremendous initiative on the municipal level, on the mayoral level, in the council level. So all in all, I, I, I think Australia is doing a great job. I think it's a real leader. I, I, if it was 
you know, an island off, a big island, mind you, but off California, I mean, everybody would be going there and saying, why don't you do like the Australians are doing, you know, but, you know, we, people don't know what you're doing. Cool. I mean, you mentioned Take Two when we were here together and, and the Bendigo Drawdown. There's two examples of these local municipal initiatives. Are there any other stories that you came across as you were travelling around Australia? You know, Australia Ethical, you know, just as a company, you look at uh, Sustainable Living Tasmania with already commitments, you know, within the next decade or so to, you know, basically be 100% renewable and and now going beyond that. You go to Beyond Zero, that organization is, you know, I mean, you just have um, organizations, Climate Works with Anna Scarbeck is doing, John Thwaites, I think, is the chairman. I mean, you just have organizations and people here who are, they're certainly not overachieving, but they're overachieving in comparison to what's happening in most of the world, by no, no question. And also you see a kind of a local enthusiasm. In Bendigo, there was uh, a Q&A session, and then there was one more question, and somebody got that question, but a woman insisted that she get another question. You know, she was insisting. <laughs> and and I, everybody kind of knows each other, so it wasn't like you could say no. you know. But anyway, what her question was, how many of you, uh, raise your hand. I have the photograph of it. I should send it to you. How many of you, raise your hand, will write and get in touch with the Premier, Andrew? I forget the name, but anyway, the Premier. Daniel Andrews. And, yeah, yeah, and tell him that you want Victoria to be a drawdown state. Wow. <laughs> and the whole audience raised their hand. It was so emblematic, you know. Of, I mean, obviously, if I'm going to give a talk in Bendigo, that's who's going to come, you know. But, but still, you know, there was this there was this connection between people and organizations and companies and business and schools and you know and that I really experienced firsthand. And maybe it's because at home I don't. I, I just I think it's I think it's special here. I think it's more special than you know. That's interesting. I guess you explained at the talk that um, you know the solutions are already here, the actions are underway. But but given that drawdown is presented as a plan, what what do you think needs to happen next for us to reach drawdown sooner rather than later? I mean, these sorts of events seem to me like they're they're helping, that they're bringing people together, they're channeling that energy. But I'm not sure um, what you see as the sort of the, the next steps or the requirements to move forward. Well, I don't know what the next steps are for Australia. That's for sure. And and we have to, you know, we did say it's a plan. It's not our plan. We didn't propose the plan. Drawdown is not the progenitor of the plan. What we're saying is we found a plan, that the collective wisdom of humanity has a plan collectively that even it doesn't know about. Um, and in a sense, it's like holding up a mirror and looking at it and saying, what do you see? There it is. So we are not the sponsors or, you know, promoters of a plan. What we want to do, and I think we'll do now, is uh, implant the model into Australia in at least four places, maybe five or six or more. Um, and then that model be used in a regional way, which is really what the model is for. It's, there's no sex thing. It's a global model. It's fascinating data, no question about it, but there's no such thing as a global. It doesn't exist, you know. And what exists is, you know, towns, states, provinces, shires, you know, and farms and people. And so I believe ANU, uh, RMIT, Monash, the University of Melbourne will um, be housing or domiciling the model. And that model then becomes, we don't control it at all. I mean, it's I want to say your model, but it's, it belongs to that, you know, that place and those students and those people have access to it, and which is, I hope is everybody. And um, then the model can be used to basically uh, specify those solutions which are more applicable to Australia or to certain parts of it. It can be used to benchmark, it can be used to measure the costs um, more accurately uh, because Australia costs are different than Belgium's, different than Boston's, different than Japan's. And so the costs become more um, 
accurate and and it, it can be used as, as I say as a way to measure progress along with that and I don't know if we spoke about that that night at our MIT but you know we're working with a fabulous individual who is making airships did we talk about the airships yeah the ones that can actually analyze what's going so, on on the ground in terms of emissions is that right Exactly, down to GPS fence line. So what happened is that will be married to the model so that when there is one or more, uh, there'll be more than, more than one, but uh, for Australia, then the model will not only have what's going on on the ground in terms of solutions, but also have real-time data on what the results are. Mm-hmm. And uh, it can't measure sequestration, because it can measure the difference between one type of land use or farm use or raising use and another, very starkly so. And you know, I was just looking at the tally, was it last night, looking at the floods in Canberra, you know, and people were all going about, like, oh, the drains, we told you the drains were too small, it wasn't, you know, it has nothing to do with drains, you know, it has everything to do with the perverse way the land has been used around there over a century, and uh, it can't take up water. And uh, it wasn't, you know, the flood of a century. You know, it's a century of misuse of the land. So real-time data coupled with the models means that not just Australia, but anybody who has the model and has that connected to readouts that are real-time for a city, a block, a country, a province, a shire, whatever it is, will be able to know exactly where you are, or you know that entity is going and right now as i said we're flying blind we really don't know you know what we all we all all we have is a mauna loa in hawaii that's it and you know i mean obviously on the ground measurements of knocks and socks and pollutants and you know stuff but i mean we really do not have any other way of calibrating measuring and understanding what humanity is doing on the planet and the impact it's having uh other than you know local very 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 local measurements but not even emissions from the land it's interesting you're talking about dividing it up by regions and and working on that basis because something that phil's been really keen on talking about a lot is the idea of breaking it up by sector as well and applying drawdown to something like the HVAC and R sector. Um, yeah. Could you see yeah. that approach working as well? What's going to fascinate us is what people do with this is, as opposed to, you know, we think or you should or we could. I mean, we have ideas as well. But our primary purpose is to be a living research institute to refine and improve the research methodology to enable people to localize it so that it's functionally useful to connect those people to other universities around the world because as it becomes more sophisticated and accurate, then best practices can be shared someday maybe, then we take the data that's coming from the local areas and then aggregate it up, and now we start to have a global model that actually means something. (laughs) You know, I mean, a global uh, perspective, a global picture that is years away. We are a response organization as opposed to a promote organization. In other words, we respond to people like you who have ideas, and then we try to determine how it is that we can support you and your ideas as opposed to we have an idea, would you take up our idea? You know, and would you take this up? Would you be the person in Australia that does the drawdown, blah, blah, blah? Uh, that's not the organization we are. We actually started from the point of view of what do what does nature do? And what nature does is it self-organizes. Your body self-organizes. Every ecosystem does. The sky, the climate, it's all self-organized. It's not managed. There's nothing in life that's managed. No. And when we manage it, we usually get it wrong. So what we're trying to do is open up the sort of the understanding, the data economic uh, research pathways so that Drawdown is a self-organizing process that occurs on different levels of society. And our job is just to basically get out of the way, but also to feed and serve that in whatever way it manifests. So, Paul, I've had um, an initial discussion with Paul Cooper, who's heads up the Sustainable Building Research Centre, and I, I connected the two of you about, yes. about how we can do the math. As you, I love the way you just eloquently put it. You know, simply put it, we did the math. 
about how we can do that across our sector. And it's, so, it's certainly something, I guess my question is, how, how can we best create our process which is best informed by, by the drawdown process? And would you, or would drawdown be um, comfortable with working with us or sponsoring our idea, whatever the, whatever the process is to, yeah. to help yeah, us move along, kick out, kick out of the plant room? Yeah, yeah, that's what, that's what we're here to do. But we're also here to connect you to others who are doing similar, if not ex exactly the same, in other locations. Absolutely. And here to, awesome. To, and you'll discover something. We're a coalition. So with respect to refrigeration, we there's people all over who've contacted us. Yep. We want to put everybody in touch and, and see what happens, you know, Fantastic. to that. Because something will happen that we would never imagine or could possibly, you know, do anything about of any consequence. But you can. Absolutely. And, yeah. and, and so, for example, on buildings, the, the, there's so much... There's so much innovation going on in the built, in the built environment. I mean, it's, it's just astonishing. So one of the ways, I mean, we have, as you know, the coming attractions, which are valid techniques, practices, technologies, you know, but there isn't sufficient data to measure them, you know, on a global level. So we don't. We didn't. But we have a couple hundred more of them. So Drana becomes a way of spreading those ideas and getting people here and connection and connected to somebody else somebody else who's doing this and vice versa so it's a network and if it operates properly and we're building a hub the hub will just work pretty much by itself you know it won't be something where we have to you know meet in the morning and decide what we're going to do about the hub yeah um uh, that'll be a bad hub uh, a good hub is self-organizing. Yeah. And then we can all see how it morphs and materializes and transforms and changes and grows and, you know, appendages and new initiatives and so forth, you know. And 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 we can also just put our blinders on and say, I'm just, I, I'm, my focus is refrigeration. I'm going to stick to it. You know, I want to know, you know, I'm, I can't pay attention to these other issues right now because I got my plate full. And that's, it, it, that's exactly what the hub is for as well. So people then can gather around where they have the greatest interest and experience, knowledge, and uh, frankly, leverage. Yeah, I think that's what the hub's going to do. I think mm -hmm. certainly from from my own personal point of view, Paul, what my passion and skill is 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 in connecting, connecting good ideas, putting awesome people together to do awesome things. So that idea of a hub that I can play a role in, kind of helping manifest through through building the hub. Um, exactly, the hub is like the model, which is you can. A hub it yourself. In other words, you yeah. say, "This is I'm, I'm hubbing Australia." You know, boom on whatever it is, and it's and you know, and you can grow it. You know, without excuse me, our permission yep. or uh, our approval or you know, no holy water gets sprinkled on it. You know, <laughs> it just is. We don't trademark the name. It's self-governing. So, do we, is, like, there, is there a way of getting a um, like a, a Paul Hawking quote or? Endorsement. I don't know what the right word is. <laughs> oh yeah, you can do that. I was a Catholic once. I can <laughs> blessed. <laughs> yeah, blessed are my children. Thank you so much, both of you, and stay in touch. And we'll we will be in touch for a long time to come. Same time, Paul. Okay. Trip back. Cheers. Thanks so. See you, mate. Okay. Cheers. Bye. <laughs> Whew, I felt like I was on a call with Paul Hawken, and I am very chuffed to have been interviewing an interviewer of Paul Hawken, star editor of Drawdown, if I can put it like that. <laughs> I totally understand you being starstruck, Mark. Drawdown is really an important piece of work. The more I read it, the more I agree with people like Lee Baker, who would concur with that summation. Yeah, and talking with her really did help me realize that it's the work we should be focusing on, that, that I should be focusing on, and have really taken on board that this is just a very early step in this process. Yeah, there's a lot of hard work to do now, but at least we know where the road is. Yeah, and what an exciting road it is to be on. We've got the future of humanity before us, Rich, not to be overdramatic, but that's the view I tend to take. You overdramatic, Mac? Come on, never. <laughs> <laughs> and coming out from the woodwork, we have people from really chronically ignored facets of society, like the wizards in the HVAC plant rooms in all of our big buildings, all over our big cities, 
joining us on this trip. I've got a fantastic image of these wizards emerging from the dark now. Thank you, Mark. See, they, that, would but, uh, they would love that. They would absolutely love that. Uh, just give me a chance to catch up before you get too far ahead there. Uh, that's a lot of information to get all at once. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, like I, I've had a few weeks to start reading up on HVAC and R, and I still don't know a lot. But um, mm. how about I give you this little mini overview of what that industry is really all about now in easy language to help out. Okay. So, Phil, how has mechanical AC and ventilation changed not only the way we live, but how we're living in our mental state? One of the things I've come to realize after reading um, a great book called Comfort, Cleanliness and Convenience by Elizabeth Shove in the in the UK is that mechanical cooling has actually caused us to close up our buildings, uh, make them airtight. And what that's done is actually disengaged us from nature and the, the outdoors. You think more in the residential space, we no longer have verandas, patios to sit out on that would typically have shaded the house. So we lose that connection to nature, which we're all part of nature. And also you lose that direct connection with your neighbor, which is that human contact, which is a big part of, of mental health. It's also another big part of my passion as well. Having lived with depression for a long time, I'm a huge advocate for human connection, making time for your well-being. And that's another part we want to bring to, to the work we're doing um, with this global network. Right, no tech talk, no chemical talk. Yep, that helped me a lot. I can see why they call it the hidden industry now, Mark. Yeah, I don't think I'll be looking at a building the same way again after learning this stuff as well, Rich. You know, not without seeing the way it just relies on brute force power use and potential greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah, rather than using smart design and a consideration of sustainability. But we can change that. Not you or me, but the HVAC industry themselves. Yeah, and, and people in the industry like Phil that are stepping up to be these champions, they're brilliant and we really need to cheer them on and give them all the motivation they need to keep going because they're doing great work. Absolutely. Well, I learned a lot. I had some laughs. I feel inspired and honestly, I'm a little bit tired after all that. Oh, is, it, <laughs> is it time to take a nap, Rich? Well, it could be, yes. All right. Well, if you are going to take a nap, just just promise me you can leave the AC off. All right. <laughs> use an extra blanket instead. You know, I yep. I know now after learning this, you know, knowing that a quarter of Australia's power is going to this industry alone mm. and that a lot of our climate polluting emissions are coming from it as well. Like I know I'd rather use an extra blanket at night than than use my AC. I'd rather wrap an extra blanket on me than a blanket of emissions around our planet. You've converted me, Mark. Yep. <laughs> so would I. And with that, folks, have a great week. Thank you for joining us and keep well in these extraordinary times. We hope you're liking the show as much as we're enjoying making it. It would mean so much to us if you could leave a rating and review for the show on iTunes. This will really help other people find the show. We're after a few really good reviews to use in our press kit we're building to help us spread the word about the show to environmental groups and organizations all over Australia that we'd love to work with in future. So if you could spare just a few moments of your time and go to the link in the show notes, we'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Now, we've got some credits for you, some people we need to thank. But before we get to there, I just want to let you know that Climactic is now on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and everywhere you get podcasts. So we can now finally say, tell your friends they can find Climactic wherever they listen to shows. Thanks to our producer, Caleb Fidicaro, our designer, Abigail Hawkins. And I'd like to thank Greg Grassi for all the music on Climactic. And Gretchen Miller, our senior advisor. Thanks so much to Phil Wilkinson for being an amazing host this week and opening the door for us to be in touch with Project Drawdown. We got tweeted about by Project Drawdown this week. So it's a big moment for us. And let's keep that momentum going. So from me, thank you so much, folks, and have a great week. And from me too. Thank you very much. The Climactic Collective. Collective.